0: Hello, everyone. My name is Lauren. And I'm Cooper. And we're the Thrive Initiative.
1: We host meaningful discussions with professionals in the fields of mental health and neuroscience.
0: We hope to spark conversations surrounding mental health, provide teenagers with resources and self-care tools, and inspire a generation of mental health advocates. Welcome to our podcast. Just a quick reminder that the information included in this podcast is for educational purposes only and is not intended to be a substitute for professional care. If you feel that you need more assistance or support, please check out thethriveinitiative.org for resources and referrals.
1: Welcome everyone to episode 12 of the Thrive podcast. We are excited to introduce today's guest, Leslie Davenport. Leslie Davenport brings the role of psychology
0: into interdisciplinary dialogues that advance creative and effective solutions to climate change. Leslie is a founding member of the Institute for Health and Healing, one of the nation's first and largest hospital-based integrative medicine programs. Her 25 years of medical experience developing an empowering and collaborative approach to resolving crises has informed her climate psychology model. She's the author of three books, including Emotional Resiliency in the Era of Climate Change, and we're so excited to have you here today.
2: Uh, thank you. I'm very happy to be joining you as well.
1: So jumping right in, uh, we wanted to start off with a more basic question. How did you find the field of climate psychology and what projects you engage with in this field and what is climate psychology? I think it's something that lot of <laughs> us don't know about. I certainly didn't know that was a thing, so... Please
2: enlighten us. Yeah, happy to talk about all of that. Well, first of all, it really is an emerging field. So it's not very well known, although it's growing at a rapid pace. Um, And it has several several features. One is I'm sure you're familiar with the rise in eco-anxiety or environmental grief that as people become more aware, of what's happening with the climate crisis. It just stirs up all kinds of feelings. You know, what's possible? What does this mean? What can I do? It's overwhelming. It's scary. Um, and so it's bringing some of the tools from within the field of counseling psychology to support those feelings, but it's held within the context of really acknowledging that um, the feelings are justified. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not a matter of overreacting or, oh, just calm down. You know, it's, it's really in the context that we are facing an, an existential threat. Mm-hmm. Um, and nevertheless, we need to learn how we can be resilient enough inside of ourselves to be able to speak out, to do what we can do to contribute, to make decisions however we, you know, navigate that because there's a lot of range in what people want to do and feel comfortable doing. So there's all of that. And then there's a lot that comes with psychology that helps toward climate change solutions at large, such as well, how do people change? You know, What are those underlying motivators? Because we know that just saying the facts don't do it. It didn't, have, it didn't work in like health psychology to just say exercise more and stop smoking, you need better. It wasn't enough to get most people to shift. Um, there are skills for helping to facilitate contentious conversations. So if there's a lot of conflict about something how to help create some common ground, um, how to break through denial, um, you know, just it's, it's pretty vast. And so related to that, the work I do goes in a lot of different directions. One thing I do is trainings for the mental health field, because most therapists aren't necessarily ready and knowledgeable uh, to address these issues in the context of climate change. Um, I also have brought some of those skills to very interdisciplinary think tanks. So there'll be policymakers and uh, economists and advocates and um, just having that lens or that voice at the table. Uh, I do have a, a therapy, private practice. So I work with people individually as well. Um, You know, I'm on an advisory board for a couple of different climate nonprofits. So it's kind of, oh, and then I have a book coming out actually September of this year. That's for middle school aged kids on what is climate change and coping with the feelings that come up.
0: That was a great explanation. And Sounds like climate uh, psychology really encompasses a lot of things, which I'm sure we're going to dive into in this episode. And one of the first things I wanted to ask you about is what are eco-grief and eco-anxiety and what are the common difficult emotions that people struggle with in face of the as existential reality and threat of climate change?
2: Sort of the way I was describing it before is just so understandable that especially if you're um, tracking what scientists are saying may roll out in the future, if we don't make significant changes now, it's a pretty scary picture. And so, so the eco-anxiety is, um, the eco part is just the natural fear and, and concern that arises in relation to looking at all of that through an environmental lens. Um, and similarly, the eco grief is about, um, you know, there's already a lot of losses happening, right? The loss of security, the loss of um, making future plans for some people in the same way. There's the grief around, um, you know, some of our favorite places changing, you know, our favorite summer lake that has now toxic algae blooms a certain percent of the year. Um and the way, you know, just the, even if they're more minor, the unsettling changes of things like, you know, spring flowers appearing earlier in the year than they should, or a winter that's not as cold as we're used to because it signals something's wrong, something's off. And so any kind of loss, real imagine the threat of one um, just naturally triggers a grief process. And those, you know, the emotions that go along with grief are broad from anger to sadness to bargaining to, you know, I don't want to accept this reality to eventually acceptance so that the feelings don't overcome our ability to live our life and make decisions and choices and all of that.
1: Yeah, and I think what you're talking about, I mean, there's so much uncertainty during this time, especially now during the pandemic and surrounding the climate. And I think there's often a feeling of helplessness that comes with facing climate change, too. And so, you know, this issue can sometimes feel so large and difficult to tackle where people just feel utterly helpless. So, how can teens validate? This feeling while also moving through it in order to create necessary change, because there's a lot of talk of our generation being, you know, the, the one responsible mm-hmm. to set us on a different path.
2: One thing I want to make sure I clarify is that while a lot of these feelings are really hard, they're not bad. You know, it's telling us we're paying attention. It's telling us our hearts are open. Our minds are tracking what's happening And so um, it's important to take the time to be with those feelings and process those feelings and not just jump to the, what can I do? And that is often, you know, an overlooked piece, especially because of the sense of urgency. Oh, you know, there's no time for that because there's all this that has to happen. But it actually gets in our way if we don't take time for the feelings. It can lead to burnout. It can show up in other ways. You know, if we're angry that, you know, that like you were saying, you're the generation that has to deal with that and you don't acknowledge and work with the anger. It doesn't go away if you just push it underground. It can show up as fatigue or, or uh, insomnia or all kinds of all kinds of issues or just kind of come out sideways sometimes if it's in there anyway. And then, in terms of the kind of what can I do, you know, I'm just one person in the face of something so large. Um, one thing that I really believe is true is that it really does take all fields and all kinds of people to address this. In other words, you know, if you lean toward, well, this is a policymaking solution or a technology solution. I think there is truth in that. Those are areas that need to change. But artists can be incredibly influential. Educators can be influential. Students can be influential. And so some of it is to, you know, I like to say we're not asked to do everything, but we're all asked to do what we can do and to maybe start within the sphere of our own influence. So we, we don't all have to become engineers. And, and let me give you an example uh, from my life, because sometimes, while well, I do try and participate on these larger scales, sometimes I feel uh, as a psychotherapist where I'm in a quiet room one-on-one, that's not enough going on. But I worked with a man who is in the environmental field, because a lot of people kind of seek me out for that. and. Um, very influential, uh, but he had a terrible speaking phobia. So for him to get up at a conference at the podium and be recorded, um, he just was struggling with that. And it was kind of getting in the way of his gift to do so and his platform and his following. So the fact that I could help him work through that so that then he could stand at the podium you know, reach large numbers of people, have that be recorded. Everybody in that link had an, in a way, an equally important role to play. Um, And so I think it's really important to consider that, that whatever you do, it's hard to measure the way the impact ripples out. And then of course, we also don't have to do it alone. You know, there are so many benefits to joining with others who are sharing the same concern and um, you know bringing everyone's skill and talent and time and energy together because it really multiplies in terms of the impact as well as just kind of the mutual support that can happen in that kind of a setting too
0: yeah and I really I really loved what you said in the beginning of that answer about validating the emotions and it's actually, you know, normal to feel this way and not to say that you should feel this way, but in face of all this, Mm -hmm. you know, news that we're getting, it seems like a pretty natural response to feel anxious or helpless. Um, And I heard you talk about the concept of negativity bias in another interview, and Mm -hmm. I found that concept Mm -hmm. to be really interesting. So I was Mm -hmm. wondering if you could explain what that is and how that works.
2: Sure, sure. No, that's a really good point. So we are wired neurologically, we're programmed to, uh, for our brains and our emotions to amplify negative news. And the reason this is so is that it's, it was kind of built in as a survival mechanism. So if we were out on the Savannah, we were always looking for threats because we had to do that. And that was where our attention was focused. And so they say that, there's different people weigh in on the ratio, it varies a little bit, but approximately for every piece of good news or a good experience, um, and every piece of bad news, they don't weigh out one and one to neutralize to zero, you need five times as many positive experiences for it to kind of net zero out with a negative one. And you can can probably relate to this (laughs) because a lot of the studies were done in relationships. So, you know, some some bad experience happens and it just lingers with you. It doesn't matter if there were 20 really nice things. This bad one is the one that, um, you know, kind of stays with us the longest. And there's other reasons for that too, but this amplification process is one of the reasons that takes place. And why it's good to know with climate change is that while it is big and it is very serious, just to know that our brain is also amplifying that news. And sometimes we have to work a little harder to seek out the good things that are happening because there are those as well. But we have to be a little more active about it to have a, a more full perspective. That's
1: definitely an, inf- an unfortunate truth, but um it does make sense and I think like you were saying kind of seeking out the more positive things or the the little things that can make you feel a little bit better about the situation I know there was a lot of talk at the beginning of the pandemic about how this could be a time for us to kind of reverse our our bad habits and make a difference in the the changing climate for the better and I don't really know how that's played out but I think focusing on that at the beginning of the pandemic definitely made me feel better about just the entire world in general. And like, there was kind of a silver lining to the whole thing, or like there was some, mm-hmm. some opportunity to do better and make changes. Um, so mm-hmm. I, I like that point of kind of finding those things to latch onto as well without losing sight of obviously the seriousness of the yes. situation. Yes. Yeah. Um, but, you know, balancing it out, not letting yourself just get drowned in the, in the negative. Mm
2: -hmm. And I think
1: especially in this day and age, there's so much negativity
0: in the media that sometimes it's hard to find the good. Um, And I really think like Lauren said, and like you said, there's a balance we have to strike with, you know, being informed and, taking the situation seriously, but also taking care of ourselves and, you know, not yeah. letting the negativity bias really, you know, overwhelm us.
2: Yeah. And to just know, you know, they like, we're saying part of the practice is where do we direct our attention? There's an old saying that I think it's a Chinese proverb that says in every moment, there's 10,000 joys and 10,000 sorrows. And um, of course, not that that's necessarily literal, but it may feel like, you know, we're only experiencing the sorrows, but if we turn our focus, um, or, you know, if someone's in denial, maybe they're just in the 10,000 joys. (laughs) Mm -hmm. But the fact that we have the capacity to maneuver is really the
1: point. Mm -hmm. That makes a lot of sense. So um, like we mentioned earlier, you wrote a book called The Emotional Resiliency in the Era of Climate Change. We wanted to talk a little bit about that and what is emotional resilience and how can teens practice this in the face of um, this existential threat posed by climate change?
2: Yeah, well, the old definition of emotional resilience, the one that's been in the of psychology for a long time, has been the ability to kind of bounce back after a challenging or stressful situation. So something happens, you feel all those feelings, you come back. The reason I say that it's an old definition, it still has its place, but I actually think we all need to increase our capacity to be with more. Um, Because that's kind of what may be asked of us. So let me introduce another concept and then kind of tie them together. Um, There's a a term called our window of tolerance, or it's been called our zone of resilience, um, where uh, if if we're in that zone, we can handle whatever's coming at us pretty well. Challenges, new situations, things we have to do. Um, but if there's too much or our zone shrinks from things like not sleeping for three or four nights in a row, or too many things on our plate, then what happens, these things come at us and we can't deal with them very well. And we either lash out and get reactive or we kind of check out and withdraw and isolate. And so if in fact, um, The challenges posed by climate change may be increasing before they get better. Um, We may be asked to emotionally deal with more in life than we even are now. So I like to think of emotional resiliency as the capacity to remain present, centered, grounded. Open heart, open eyes, open mind, even in the face of difficult challenges. Mm. And the way to that, the good news, the way to that really varies. There's all the super basic things, like I was saying, like sleeping, eating. <laughs> but uh, everyone has to kind of get familiar with their own self care practices. For some, it's going to be very quiet, you know, meditative or yoga. For some, it might be kickboxing or running. But you know, what's that thing where you can just kind of clear out the system, do a reset, um, you know, not keep kind of churning over the same concerns um, is the most important part of it.
0: I really love that about finding self care that works for you. And you're so right, it can really vary from person to person. Like for me, I need to, I'm the kind of person who needs to like move my body and run or cycle and just kind of exercise in a way that I can release. Um, and I also wanted to touch on what you were talking about with the old or quote unquote old definition of emotional resiliency where something happens and then you bounce back after. I think with the pandemic and with climate change, these things are kind of a constant state of unfolding yeah. and happening. They don't really happen and then end. So you're just having yeah. to be resilient while it's all happening kind of in an eternal state if that makes sense
2: (laughs) it totally makes sense that's a really that's another good reason why we have to kind of stretch the definition um I live now in Tacoma Washington but I used to be down in the San Francisco Bay Area of California and you know they have so many wildfires now yeah um I have a close friend who lost her home three years ago in the fire and then evacuated again this last summer and was okay this time around. But it's exactly that kind of thing where the, you know, once in a rare occasion, there might be, you know, a natural disaster to have to contend with, but now it's becoming recurring or it's becoming more frequent or, you know, with the elevating temperatures There's just going to be much more prolonged situations that we have to address in a different way than we've ever had to before.
0: You know, Lauren and I were based in LA and something that I've noticed is I never really dealt with wildfires up until I was in seventh grade. And it started happening like once every year or two. Um, And that's been scary to deal with, but this was never something I experienced and now, like you're saying, it becomes a recurring thing. Like mm-hmm. Lauren and I have both had to evacuate from our homes before. Um okay. and it's just kind of becoming Anorm- more normalized, which is really strange.
2: Yes. Yes. Definitely. Yeah, you know, and in a way, that's why we do want those um strong emotions in, in a sense to stay with us because yes. We have to adapt and in that regard it's somewhat normalized so we know what to do and how to deal with it. But we don't want to adapt so far that it does get defined as the new normal if we can help it, right, Mm -hmm. (laughs) if we Mm -hmm. can help it. Right,
1: Um, and going back to what we were talking about a little earlier about ways to address climate change for those who aren't necessarily eager to participate in protests or, you know, larger mm-hmm. social demonstrations, and obviously that's something that's not very available or an option during this time. Yeah. So how can those people address climate change in their own ways and take action? Because it's something that's impacting everyone and is probably really important to most people. And um, so how can we all take action in our own ways?
2: Yeah, well, that does go back to what I was saying about our sphere of influence and where, are, where do our natural talents and inclinations lie? And honestly, even things like um, being willing to have conversations, which is not always welcome. Uh, Catherine Hayhoe, of, you may know her name, very big climate scientist. She says that's one of the best things we can do is keep it alive in the conversations that we have. And, you know, if it's gonna be conversations with, say, a family member who's less familiar, less on board, um, it can seem contra, it can seem against our intuition. But one of the best ways to have a conversation is to start by listening, by raising the topic and then asking questions and finding out more about what they think and feel and, and things because, you know, if we go in there too strong with the idea of uh, winning someone over, it often just creates greater divides. Um, there's a quote I like that something goes something like, um, we can't open minds by cracking heads. Mm. <laughs> you know, even though we feel that impulse to just shake someone sometimes. Mm -hmm. Um, So that's one thing. Um, And then, like I was saying, you know, if someone has an artistic bent, could they apply their music, their poetry, their drawing, their dance to an expression? That's a whole different form of communication related to climate. Mm -hmm. Or if someone is in the sciences, um, can school presentations or projects of lean in that direction. I I feel like it's just trying to use what's available to us and kind of seize the opportunity. Mm -hmm.
1: I think that's, you know, such a great tip. We all have our own abilities and different talents. And I think that's one of the best ways to raise awareness because not everything takes one form and obviously things are going to stand out when they look different. And so those, you know, different things, whether it be an art display or a song can really have an impact yeah. and catch people's attention. So I, I like that point. And I also wanted to say that um when you were mentioning conversations, I think one of the most challenging things about climate change is like we were saying before, it's something that's, been happening. Um, it's kind of like an unraveling process. It's been happening for a while. It continues to happen. And so it's almost always there that we just become so immune to it that it's not even one of the most, because it's not, you know, hot news or popping up in, you know, mm-hmm. on our on our TVs um, immediately. I think it's not something that we're constantly talking about, which is obviously problematic in some ways. So it's almost like it's, not forgotten, but just in the back of our minds, and not really
2: at the. Yeah. Center. You know that that is one of the challenges that it kind of goes again goes against human psychology in a couple of ways. Is like you've described, there aren't well, there's a lot happening. There aren't a lot of prompts in our day to day life. We can't see the CO two being emitted into the atmosphere right. most of time Mm -hmm. um the the impacts come big and in certain moments and in certain places and of course that's only going to be increasing but it it does require like you're saying that we almost have to remind ourselves what we know to be true
1: Mm -hmm.
2: which is really unfortunate and the other thing with our psychology is we're so oriented toward um Kind of our short-term goals rather than long-term impacts and again everyone's got a lot on their plate they're in school or they're working or they've got families or you know it's it's understandable um but to switch our thinking to include the rollouts Because you may know, you know, there's a time lag, even if we stopped all the CO2 emissions today, there's about a 40 year period where the impacts continue to occur before it would start to reverse. Wow. So um, yeah, it's, it's almost like making a commitment to ourselves to keep it front and center since we don't have those reminders around us.
1: Right. Mm-hmm. And we live in California, so it's not like the seasons are so drastically different, you know, in the first place. <laughs> yes, I so. for us, you know, the only thing that we're seeing really in terms of climate change that's really in our eyes are these these wildfires. And they didn't happen, in at least in our general area of Los Angeles this year. So it's almost like, oh, maybe things are getting better because there wasn't a a wildfire in this area when that's not necessarily the case. We're so kind of in our own bubble that we forget that, okay, just Mm -hmm. a couple miles north of us in San Francisco, there are huge Mm -hmm. wildfires this year. So um, Mm -hmm. I think, you know, educating ourselves about the rest of the world, what's going on with coral reefs and with, you know, all of these, other really important changes that are taking place that aren't necessarily right in front of us to remind us that this is still going on and we need to do something about it, obviously. We live in such a fast
0: paced, um, impatient society that sometimes when these changes are slow, mm-hmm. I think people forget to step back and see them, um, yes. which is important to you know, ground yourself in facts. Um, and next I kind of wanted to jump to something we haven't talked about yet and it's a little more specific, but I've heard you discuss, um, EMDR before. So uh-huh. what is EMDR and how does this connect to eco grief and anxiety?
2: EMDR is a therapeutic approach. It's often used in relation to trauma and the letters stand for eye movement, desensitization and reprocessing. Mm-hmm. So here's how it works. Um, the brain holds information in different parts, literally in different areas of the brain. For example, what you smell, what you see, what you hear, what you think, your, your rational cognitive abilities live in a different part of the brain than your sensory input. And in, this isn't really accurate anymore, but in very loose terms, you know, we used to talk about the right hemisphere and the left hemisphere of the brain, where the left hemisphere is our logical mind and our right hemisphere is our intuitive, creative sensory mind. Um, so when, when someone like a, uh, let's say a veteran of war is, who experienced trauma, is reintegrating into, sorry, it's a long explanation, but it's kind of a complex area. When they're reintegrating into daily life, um, they may say to themselves using their logical mind, well, that's behind me. I'm here. I'm safe. I'm going to, you know, behave in a new way. And that works great until they smell smoke or they hear a car backfire, or something that triggers a kind of experience, it's being held in a different part of the brain Mm -hmm. than that cognitive part. So what EMDR or eye movement does is it literally uses movement of the eyes from side to side while focusing in a particular way that jumpstarts the brain's ability to integrate those two things together, like what we think, what we feel, what we saw, what we experienced, instead of, because of trauma, having them live in separate parts of us. Um, And they think that the eye movements mimic what happens with REM sleep, that Mm. when we dream and we sleep, our eyes literally move from side to side, because when our eyes move, it activates a part of the brain goes to the other side, it activates a different part of the brain. So when we apply that to, especially if someone has had to live through um, a severe weather event, uh, it can be traumatizing Mm -hmm. to lose a home or to feel that someone's life was literally in danger. all the things that can come with something like that. And so it is a tool, it it does have to be um, done by a therapist who's trained in that particular model. But it's surprisingly fast and effective at helping someone work through those feelings.
1: Mm -hmm. I think that's fascinating. And (laughs) We actually very, very appropriate because last week we were talking with um, a sleep doctor who was talking all about wrestling mm-hmm. and everything. So mm-hmm. noticed a lot of overlap there and I love to hear it. Thank you for that explanation. Cause I think sometimes trying to
0: explain it to people can be really it's, difficult. It's and hard. I think that was a great way of explaining it and outlining it.
1: So on the subject of self-care, we wanted to know what some of your favorite and sustainable self-care suggestions
2: are that we can Mm -hmm. practice during this time? Mm -hmm. Well, you know, this sounds really simple and in a way it is, but it's very powerful, which is working with the breath. Because what we want to do is we want quick, easy tools that can sort of be done anytime, anywhere that regulate the nervous system. Mm -hmm. Because if we're stressed, we're afraid, we're in high anxiety. um, That's when we get again out of our zone of tolerance, our zone of resilience. So we want something that can bring us back into our bodies. And um, it's simple, like one that I really like is just to first... Give, you know, give yourself three to five minutes to say, I don't have to do anything else. I don't have to answer my phone. I don't have to look at the email. Carve out the time so that if you get distracted, you can go five more minutes. You, know, you can really use it. And then you just bring your focus to your breath. You want to pull your attention down out of your thoughts and just an even breath in, full and slow, an even breath out, full and slow. Even breath in, full and slow. Even breath out, full and slow. It sounds simple, but you know when we are stressed, we start having um, what's called chest breathing rather than it dropping down all the way to, to our abdomen, which is if you ever watch a baby or a young child, they breathe and their belly moves. We wanna recreate that really natural way of breathing. And we want to intentionally make it a little slower and fuller, because it sort of tricks the nervous system into going, oh, you know, that's what I, you know, that's what I do when everything's fine. Mm
1: -hmm.
2: You know, so it's really interesting, the whole mind-body connection, because we can work with our thoughts to quiet our body, or we can work with our body to quiet our thoughts and and emotions. They're very interconnected. But I think to just have it so simple that all you're doing, it's like if you were to sit at the beach and watch the water come in and go out, it's like doing that, but just with your breath. Mm -hmm. And there's just this quieting calming reset that happens in the body. So highly recommend that.
1: It's so nice. So relaxing and centering. And one of the easiest things to do. Um, so I completely agree with that suggestion and thank you for sharing. And when you were, um, guiding us with that inhale and exhale. I was following along and it was very relaxing, <laughs> so thank you. Um, well, I just wanted to say thank you so much for joining us today. We are so grateful to have had you on the podcast and to be able to hear your insights and wisdom on this subject. Like I said at the beginning, I was not really aware of this whole field um, of climate psychology, so you really opened my eyes and it, I, it's, it's all so fascinating. So thank you for sharing all that you do and all your knowledge. We really appreciate it.
2: Oh, thank you. Well, I'm just delighted that you two are having this podcast and that you're creating space for this. So anytime, you can probably tell I'm pretty passionate about the topic as well. I'm always happy to share what I can.
0: So glad we got to dive into this topic. Um, And we learned a lot and I'm sure our listeners are going to learn so much as well. Thank you for joining us for another episode of The Thrive Podcast. We'll see you soon. With love, The Thrive Thrive Initiative.